G'day everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Ideas Digest podcast where we explore the ideas that divide us in order to find the humanity that connects us, or that I believe connects us and if you're listening to the show I think you believe it too. Uh, my name's Conrad and if you're a new friend of the show, a, a very special welcome. Uh, let me give you a tour of the Ideas Digest figurative house that you've just stepped into. Uh, each week we'll explore challenging ideas that hopefully... Uh, hopefully at least some of these ideas we explore, uh, you'll disagree with. That's the hope. Uh, when we come across ideas we disagree with, um, here at Ideas Digest, when we come across them, we don't fight them. We don't debate them. We don't argue them and we don't run away from them either. Uh, we actually do something different and we sit and we listen and we might digest the idea, hence the name of the show. Now, if I'm honest, it's not an easy or enjoyable practice necessarily, uh, but I promise this is the, my promise. If you stick with it, I think you'll I think you'll learn to love it. But if you don't, uh, I've heard this practice isn't for everyone. If you don't, it's not for you, and, and that's okay. So it, it's been great to have you here to 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 meet you real quick, and then we'll, you can come back whenever you like. Um, with the disclaimer out of the way, to the clickbait, the thing that made you click, and hopefully it's misled you some way. Uh, here we go. God sanctioned divine sex. Now you might be thinking, am I going to get sex tips? Hey, maybe. And then, yeah, let's, let's see where it goes. Um, with, with the clickbait done, let me introduce new friend of the show, Dr. Tina. Now your Instagram says Dr. Tina shameless, but I'll let you introduce how, the, how you like to be introduced. Well, I'm Dr. Tina Shimmer Sellers. Yeah. And I'm all about shameless sex. Lots of it. And yeah. It's great to have you joining us here, Dr. Tina. I do know this. You are joining me from Seattle, yes? I am. And it's yeah. actually sunny. Oh, wow. I My window's closed. So I don't know if Melbourne's sunny, but it's it's equally miserable sometimes here. I've been to Seattle and I, I try and think of fun facts about where my guests are from. Uh, if, if we met outside just your local Amazon, where, and there's a lot of Amazon workers I hear in Seattle. Um, if we're just walking past, you know, outside Jeff Bezos's home and we bumped into each other, I was like, Oh, Dr. Tina, it's nice to meet you. My name's Conrad. Tell me about yourself. Like this surface level introduction. Well, gosh, I'd say I was a native. I'm a Northwest native. I am pretty down to earth. Um, I probably don't do the average kind of work life that most people do because I'm all about, uh, I am all about people living authentically and I'm all about living authentically, but mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I push boundaries, um, not for the sake of pushing boundaries, but I'm all about comprehensive sex education. I grew up in a Northern European immigrant home that um, really saw sexuality as a natural and normal loving part of life and in America we don't do it that way and um, and that has caused us a lot of problems a lot a lot of problems and and so because of that it puts me in this place where I'm often talking about sexual health and how to live in a way that we do intimacy and relationships well and and so it, it ends up putting me on the outside of a lot of things that most people are kind of having a hard time talking about. And I'm like, yeah, but that's just life. We're made this way. And let's get to a place where we're actually really comfortable talking about it and where we're dispelling shame 
with ourselves and seeing ourselves as beloved and wonderful. And so that we can have these conversations with our kids too. So our kids can know when they're gonna be getting exploited or something and they actually have the ability to protect themselves and choose good partners, et cetera, et cetera. So I find myself, even though I feel like I'm pretty authentic and down to earth, I find myself in conversations that typically aren't happening with other people. Great introduction. It's it's nice to meet you at the at the head, headquarters of, of Amazon. But I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be honest, Tina. Um, I've just judged you. I've been throwing judgments your way in my mind. I'm like, oh bloody Seattle. I, so I've got a lot of judgments. I'd like to confess them to you. Get them off my chest, and you can you can put them in two boxes: a yes box or a no box. Um, some people try and make it for third box. We'll we'll call it, we'll look at the referee. Yes, that's right. We'll we'll look at the referee and go, will we allow this? And he's pretty strict, I hear. So, all right. First, first judgment here. Uh, Seattle, all I'm thinking is like, bloody coffee hipster. That's what you are. A coffee uh-huh. snob. We kind of created a, a culture around it. Mm. And I think because we kind of mm. needed to slow down, you know, Howard Schultz was all about traveling in Italy and seeing how people were slowing down and having, creating life around it. But then ironically, we did Google, Amazon, Microsoft, mm. and we just turned up culture. And coffee I don't think coffee has thing. slowed us down no. at all. <laughs> They're like, we can work for longer hours. Let's invent new technology. Okay. I think, I, okay. All right. We'll say, we'll say yes to, to that one. Um, all right. You're talking about sex. Uh, but you've also thrown the word uh, God in there. So judgments I might have might be, okay, well, if you're talking about God and sex, you must be like a purity culture advocate. <laughs> Absolutely not. Nice. Absolutely okay. not. Yeah. In fact, okay. I don't think God is either. <laughs> mm, okay. But we can have that conversation later. All right. All right. You might be triggering some listeners, and I hope you are. That were, And they, they probably welcome the triggering. Okay. Seattle. Um, and you've got a doctor, uh, the, the letters DR in front of your name. You, you, you sound to me like one of these educated liberal elites. <laughs> yeah, I probably am. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll lean into that one. All right. Well, and I've heard a uh, pet hobby of mine, friends of the show might know, US politics. It's very entertaining. The best reality TV you can get. Um, you're in Seattle. Uh, or it's close enough to Portland, but Seattle will 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 put it into the same basket. This is where this is where the the radical left lives. You're a radical left living in the radical left land. You know, you you can really touch on some tender places here because mm. during the Black Lives Matter movement, what was shot on TV uh, really said that there was so much uh, radical left going on. Um, and it really didn't show how much violence was happening um, by the police. And, um, and my, I had kids, <laughs> I have kids that are in their 30s. I had kids that were um, violently attacked in, in peaceful protests. And, um, and I couldn't go to sleep at night until I had heard that they were home. And I had mom friends that were just hooking arms. That's all they were doing was hooking arms. And they were bull plowed down by the police, you know, and 
they were just standing there. So it was so hard for me to be watching the news and, and hear them talking about how the protesters were being violent and everything. And I knew they were because my kids were sending me videos at night. And um, it was heartbreaking. And so, and not only heartbreaking, but I was angry, you know, because I thought, you know, we do have a constitutional right to say, this is wrong in our country. And, and I wanna be out here saying this is wrong. And then to watch, you know, I, tear gas and bullet, you know, rubber bullets being shot at people like my children you know, mm. and um, one of my one of my daughter's roommates was actually standing across from a park where there was a peaceful protest happening across from the park. And she had uh, and, sh- and uh, she had said to a group of police officers, please go home. This is a peaceful protest. There's no reason for you to be here. And they charged her across from the park and then shot point blank rubber bullets at her at her chest. And she was covered in, of course, in, in bruises, you know, and these kinds of things were happening all the time in Seattle and in Portland. And those things didn't get reported. And I even wrote some of the news agencies and saying, if you're going to report on this, please report on both sides, because I don't think the country understands what's happening, you know? And so I have feelings (laughs) about some of these things because it wasn't Mm. accurately reported. And you hear people saying, oh, you know, those places are just so, and I'm like, you know, it's not that things weren't happening that shouldn't have been happening. There was definitely looting Mm. and there's definitely these kinds of things, but man, there was a lot of very American peaceful things happening Mm. that we have the right to do. And some really horrible things that were being ordained by the president that we had at the time. I guess uh, I'll I will allow the nuance the nuance on that one. I, I do appreciate that that insight. So we'll say no to that one. Um, <laughs> and I'm hearing God being spoken about, but I'm also hearing you, you're talking about progressive things. So you got to be one of these like progressive, choose what you want to believe Christians. A big one for labels at all and I just really never have been and maybe part of it is that I'm 60 actually I, I just turned 61 which is like an age <laughs> that is weird for me to get around because I think I still feel like I don't know what and somewhere somewhere in my 20s or 30s or I don't know what but I, I don't feel 61 and so we are so shaped by the socio-political times with which we grew up Right. And and while I spent my childhood in the Pacific Northwest, there was a period of time in my teens and my 20s where I lived in Southern California during the Jesus movement. And and it was a time when it was just there were great rock and roll, you know, it was sex, drugs and rock and roll. And the Jesus movement was actually very much like that. And um, beautiful, great music. And I would go to this, these big churches, um, Calvary Chapel in, in Santa Ana. And, and um, it was really all about um, how loved you were by God. I, mean, I became a Christian during that time. I fell in love with this radical Jesus that loved all kinds of people. It didn't matter if you were a woman, you were a man, you were a leper, you were you know, LGBTQ, it didn't matter. And that was the Jesus I fell in love with. And Jesus didn't call himself a Christian. We have to remember this, you know, Jesus was a Jew, he didn't call himself a Christian. And that was the Jesus I fell in love with. 
And so Christianity didn't become this radical conservative weirdo place until somewhere in the 80s. And the purity movement grew out of that. And it be, mm. and there was a socio-political movement that was the merging of church and state that grew out of that with the uh, with President Reagan getting uh, voted into becoming president. And there was a whole lot of policy that got passed in the United States that made some very significant things happen here. And so when people talk about progressive Christianity, in my mind, it is a backlash to what happened from 1980 forward. Well, I never joined any of that crap. Mm. And so I'm like, well, I don't really fit the progressive stuff either because I'm still this girl that just fell in love with this radical Jesus, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. that was about love and grace and justice. And I'm still mm -hmm. about love and grace and justice. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I still stand up for those things. Okay. So in a way you, you've gone no to the progressive and no to the Christian in, in a nuanced sort of way. So I'll, I'll allow that sidestepping of, of labels there. And, and I think what's good, what I, what I like, what you're speaking about there is because you're giving an insight to, to the different culture and especially the different political climate and how religion is tied up with politics in America in a way that Australians in some way don't understand. You, I could be in America and someone be like, oh, you progressive liberal guy. And I'm like, oh, cool. Is that a compliment? Like, I don't know. <laughs> but in America, that's like, it's kind of a bit of an, an attack. And so it's interesting how you're, you're talking about these things coming together. And it, it leads quite well into really what we're talking about because sex seems to be um, very a part of this political religious mix um, but before we get there can you tell me any assumptions that you've come across and and faced i suppose as you do your work what do people assume about you that may or may not be correct well this is another interesting thing i think i get asked that question or a flavor of that question probably more than any other question like what costs have you faced by doing the work that you did because you know my first book sex god in the conservative church erasing shame yeah. from sexual intimacy I kind of took on the church and not because I wanted to take on the church for no reason, but I just had so many people that didn't understand why they got hurt so much. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to give the whole picture, like how did the Christian empire church become sex negative? Has it always been sex negative? Was there ever a positive, you know, line along the Abrahamic line? <clears throat> and there was, and I wanted people to know that and to see that. Mm. And then I wanted to be able to say there was a way to heal, you know, <clears throat> your shame. And then I wanted, you know, people to know how to do practices to integrate sexuality and spirituality. So that's why I wrote that book. And, you know, I didn't get the backlash that I was expecting. And, but, you know, I think that a lot of people, a lot of maybe conservative Christians out there or whatever, they, um, they do erasure really well. And so they're not always overtly hostile. Sometimes they just cut you off or whatever. And I and the reason I say that I taught at a at a Christian evangelical university for almost 30 years. <clears throat> Actually for 31, is that right? No, it was about 30 years. I was a part of the university for 31 years. And um, while I was there, 
they never asked me to speak in their undergraduate travel. Now I, I taught in the graduate school, but mm. never. And so in many ways they were just like, let's kind of just pretend that mm. Tina isn't here. But I would have like the theology school would ask me to come in and talk to their students or, um, you know, diff different pieces of the school would like bring me in kind of quietly and say, would you please talk to them? Would you please talk to this group? You know, the safety and security would ask me to come talk during assault week or something, you know, mm. <clears throat> but the administration, I think, tried to pretend I wasn't there. Um, so I, it wasn't real. And I was fine with that. I was fine with that. It was okay because I was really supported by my chair and my dean to do the work that I did. So hmm. I, I was pretty fine. It it sounds like a an interesting mix of you know people would prefer to ignore the work you're doing around sex, which involves the critique of the Christian institution as a whole. But then within that, you found a bit of space and you found a bit of support, and so it's almost. It's almost like people may be listening going, you know, slamming the, the Christian church. But in, in some sense, I'm hearing this like there, there was, you know, a bit of credit to it for allowing you to exist within it. Granted, off to the side and a bit hidden. But given the work you're doing that I guess you go into would have been quite challenging for a conservative evangelical institution to, to really have there. Um, when we... It might be, I might put it, give it over to you as to where, where we begin with this. Um, I would be curious to know like your educational background and upbringing, I suppose, weaved into this. But when we're talking about God-sanctioned divine sex, it was as I was reading your book and I'll, a confession to everyone listening, if someone gives me, if there is an audible version of someone's book, I will, I will read it. I'm a slow reader, but boy, I can listen fast. So, so I was reading this book and that's something that stuck out. I'm like, mm, God sanctioned divine sex. It's an interesting take on it. So where, I guess, where do we begin this journey? I suppose in your book, you go through the chapters where you identify the problem. Is that where you'd, where you'd begin today or, or where would you like to start? Uh, that's, that's actually how the book was birthed. Like that's how it happened. I, I didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to do this. In fact, I, I would have probably shot myself if I thought of that. It, it grew out of seeing the damage that had happened uh, to so many of my students and to clients of mine. Um, I taught a graduate level human sexuality course from since 1992. And in that course, because I was teaching grad students who were becoming um, marriage and family therapists, I had them as one of their, their um, assignments, I had them write their sexual autobiography. And most people are like, what? You know, I can't imagine ever having to do that. But if you're going to see a therapist, you want your therapist to know what their life stories are, you know, where they begin and end and their client begins and ends. And one of our life stories that's really important to know is your sexual story. And part of the reason that's so important is because if you grow up in, in the United States, 90 to 95% of people grow up in homes that are silent or silent and shaming 
around sexuality. And so what that means is we're not narrating a story. We're just having these one-off experiences and then we tuck them under the rug. Another mm -hmm. one-off experience and we tuck them under the rug. We get caught playing doctor at five and we're mm -hmm. shamed for it. You know, we are kiss, we kiss somebody at this age. We do this at that age, whatever. So we don't have a good solid, you know, narrative. And so I give them like 70 questions and I'm like, I don't want you to answer these questions one by one. I want you to walk through thinking about how did these messages come down from your family of origin and from your grandparents to your parents, and then walk yourself from your childhood through your adolescence into your adulthood. And then I want you to look at the legacy that you've acquired and ask yourself, is this the legacy I want to carry forward? So I'm, the students would take this course toward their end of their graduate training, and they would often tell me that this was one of the hardest papers that they had to write of like the 300 that they wrote in grad school. And it was one of the most important ones that they wrote. And I've read well over 600 of these in my career. And somewhere around 2000, the flavor of these papers dramatically shifted. And the amount of self-disgust and humiliation and ignorance about what they had experienced, what they had thought, what they felt, what they did and what they didn't do, just increased so much, even though what they were describing that they had felt and done and not done and you know, not felt and, you know, wanted and didn't want, had not changed. That had not changed much, you know? <clears throat> so I was like, what's going on here? What's happening in the kids' lives that they're hating themselves so much? And so it took a while, it took a couple of years for me to dig into it. And what I found was I was hitting the first wave of kids that had gotten abstinence-only education in the United States mm. and the purity movement. So this was like, they hit their 14, 15 years around 1990, 91, 92. So this was like 2000, right? And so I'm like, so because of my age and the age of my kids, they didn't get it kind of like this, you know? And plus they had me as a mother and I grew up in a Swedish immigrant home. We talked about sexuality all the time growing up. Like you talk about brushing your teeth and vegetables and what you're gonna wear to school. I mean, it just was a completely different home. And I just broke my heart. Literally, I would walk into my chair's office and weep because I thought you shouldn't be feeling this way about yourself and your body and sexuality. And I started writing articles and speaking about this by about 2005. And I wrote an article in 2006. I got asked to um, because people started hearing about what I was saying I wrote a book, or excuse me, I wrote an article in a journal called The Other Journal, Intersection of Theology and Culture, called Christians Caught Between the Sheets, How Abstinence-Only Ideology Hurts Us. And I started hearing from people around the globe. And I realized that I hit a nerve. And I was the first person to say that I don't think the church is intending the results of this, the symptomology of this, but what is happening in the church is the way they are speaking about sexuality is causing the symptoms of sexual assault in people's lives. This is what I'm seeing. This is what people are describing. 
It's as if they were assaulted. They experienced sexual abuse as a child. And sure enough, now, of course, we have, what, 10 or 15 books where people have described this, right? X number of years later, 15 years later, we now know this to be true. But I was the first person to start writing about this and talking about it and saying, you know, here's what the, you know, the organization for gynecology and obstetrics is saying and yada, yada, yada. So <clears throat> we're now very far down the road and we know this to be true. So um, that's what took me into writing the book because mm. it just needed to be talked about. It needed to be written about and we need to do something different, entirely different. And we have all the research. We know what to do. We just keep refusing not to do it. And that's why yeah. I wrote the book coming out in two weeks. It's just like, okay, enough, enough already. I'm not waiting for policy. I'm not waiting mm. for anything. I will do everything I can to get the material in the hands of physicians, teachers, psychotherapists, clergy, and mm. parents so that they can be the educators that they need to be for their kids and for themselves. So you're describing you in a professional setting, um, working with working with students and then seeing their papers and their self self sexual assessment and then you notice a shift in in what in what's coming across and it sounds like you've got a uh, you notice a massive shift towards shame that correlates with the with a lot of students having symptoms of sexual assault that seems to have come at this time around and you're in a Christian setting in a Christian university. And so you're correlating this with the kids that will have grown up with the purity culture message. And what sounds interesting to me is that you're, there was a, for, for people like me, I'm a nineties kid. I, I, I definitely, and growing up Christian, I definitely wasn't like right in the conservative full purity culture movement, but, it was, it was kind of always there, like a very strict conservative Christian ethic. And I know girls I grew up with might have read, you know, I Kissed Dating Goodbye in those popular books. Um, but what's interesting to me is, is um, as you've been in the field for so long, you're describing a time when it wasn't like this, when the Christian church wasn't like this. Because we might be thinking, oh, Christians always been like sexually super conservative, but I'm hearing you say it's not always like this, plus describing a very it's more severe than i've actually heard it described in saying these are the symptoms of sexual assault right exactly well and so there's a couple of things i want to say there one it wasn't just the purity movement in the united states it was the purity movement on top of abstinence education across the united states so we began pumping billions and billions of dollars into the same kind of education, the same kind of message as purity movement in our public schools. 80% of that quote unquote education was medically inaccurate. So the same stuff that people were getting in church, they were getting in public education in the majority of the schools across the United States and it's still happening in most of our Southern states and most of our conservative states in the United States. We only have to date 17 states in the United States that have passed policy where they require their sexual education to be medically accurate right now, today. Wow. Only 17 of all of our states require their sex education to be medically accurate, right? So 
this is a huge problem. So that's what I mean when I say that there was a merging of church and state mm. beginning in 1980 when the conservative religious right and the moral majority began running our government mm -hmm. and deciding what policies were going to get passed. Now, it looked like it was a religious thing, but actually when you pulled back the covers, it wasn't religious. It had everything to do with capitalism. It had everything to do with making money because it was at the same time that we began passing policies that had to do with removing regulations on our banks so that the banks could do whatever they wanted to, mm -hmm. so that the banks could, the corporations could be people, right? Mm -hmm. And could then pass policies and whatever. So that we removed, we removed regulations on our, um, our media, our Federal Communication Commission, which is what controlled what media we were allowed to show. So now all of a sudden we could put on media, any of our forms of media, violence against women. So we began to see a huge increase in violence against women in our TVs, in our music videos. And then we began to have the influx of video games, brand new, and then the internet, right? Mm. And then the internet brought pornography in a particular way. And then we had all of our social media, which is all this, all of this has happened right since that time. But what's overlaid it is violence and humiliation against women. So meanwhile, we have taken away all real knowledge about sex education, who your body is, how it is, how it runs, what to watch out for as far as relationship, what makes a healthy relationship, what makes healthy interaction, what is consent, how you ask for it, how you protect yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And we have showed that what is normal interaction, quote unquote, is extortion or uh, exploitation against people using people as products, right? And we call this normal, but people don't know that's not normal. That is mm -hmm. fantasy, that is the male gaze, right? And so there's all kinds of exploitation happening. Men exploiting women when they don't mean to because they don't know better. Women being exploited when of course they don't want to be exploited. But if we had education, then people would be able to say, wait a minute, that's fantasy, that's Superman. I like watching Superman, but I'm not gonna go out and act like Superman. I'm not gonna <clears throat> jump off a building, right? Mm. I like watching that, I don't jump off buildings, right? Mm. I might like to masturbate to this particular activity, I'm not gonna treat a woman that way, mm. right? But we don't do that in our culture. We don't provide that education so that people can differentiate between what mm. I value, how I wanna behave, and what I might see as fantasy behavior. I'm hearing a, a, a mix of a few things that, that come together and, and get to the pointy end that we're talking about in, in sexuality. But when when you're describing, and it's quite it's quite a unique climate, the American political climate, because it, it is, at least from an Australian perspective, a heavy merging of of I, I'd say church and state, but it it, it, it seems like what you say like what it seems like is a particular story about what the church is. And it seems like politics has picked up this. The It seems to me like the religious ethic, your element in the American government you're talking about <clears throat> seems to be this, this 
this story that allows a political agenda and you seem to be saying that political agenda is still capitalism 101 it's still deregulation 101 but the conservative side of politics seems to you, you can't say oh we're all about rich people but you can say we're all about freedom and jesus and justice and you can then use those because it seems like when you're talking about they have this they stripped back education and then they deregulated and it seems to me like that all fits, funnily enough, under this freedom ethic. You know, Americans, at least as I compare to Australia as we go here, Americans super like ideologically freedom obsessed. And obviously that sounds like a great thing. But the way you describe it is saying, well, if we deregulate and then take away education, we are when we're letting people kind of do whatever they want and then and then we tell the story, oh, but you're free to choose. You're, Tina, you're free to choose whether you want to do this or not. You're, you're free to do that. But then you seem to be saying if you take away education, we take away people's ability to learn what's acceptable, what's not, what's fantasy, what's not. At the same time, we've got an unregulation of everything that just allows, in the short, just more profit. Um, does that kind of sound like a bit of a marrying of these concepts? Yeah. So over the last 40 now years, 40 years, we have said it no longer matters that what we put on the news is truth. Mm. We have, we still have a, a journalism ethic. We have a series of values of ethics in our journalism that 40 years ago we said, oh, but it really doesn't matter on cable news what you put. It's entertainment. It can be entertainment. It can be an advertisement. Well, we have 70 million people in the United States who have no media literacy, mm. who will listen to things and be like, I can believe that. Mm. And we have people who are like, it's okay because we're making a lot of money that 70 million people are believing something that are absolutely hurtful to our public, like mm. absolutely fundamentally hurtful to the soul of our democracy, to the soul of our nation. But it doesn't matter because at the end of the quarter, our stockholders are going to make money. Mm. Now, this is the shift that happened at the beginning in 1980. We used to have an ethic in the United States where the means, how we made money, mattered. It justified the ends. But beginning in 1980, the ends justified the means. In other words, as long as we made money, it didn't matter how we got there. Mm. And that ethic now 40 years later has gotten us exactly to where we are, mm. you know? And people wonder how have we gotten to where we don't trust anything? It's because people mm. are being hurt right and left, right mm. and left and we no longer care. You know, we have X number of people who are like, I'm not getting vaccinated. This problem that you seem to be identifying, it goes into a lot of areas across the board, like you've just described. So then in, in your area, when we, when we look at this pattern that you've pointed out, this, this wholesale deregulation with lack of education around media and all of these things, you're sitting in the space of sexuality, and you described students coming through having the symptoms of sexual assault. When with where you're sitting, um, and you've you've got this, you've described a mix now of uh, like government cultural climate 
plus the church purity movement. Talk to me then about, I suppose, some of the specific damage that's been caused by perhaps some of the either specific policy or the specific theology that you've witnessed. One of the things that I am always careful to say is that I don't believe that there was an intent to harm. Um, in fact, um, you, you had Josh on recently and Joshua Harris and, and I have a very soft place in my heart for Joshua because, um, Josh was 21 when he wrote his book and, and most 21 year olds developmentally, you know, can think pretty highly of themselves can think like, you know, I know a lot. I know a lot. You know, my prefrontal lobe isn't completely finished yet. You know, I'm damn, I'm damn good. I, I, I got it all figured out, you know, and my dad used to say that's, that's when I could really tell my parents where to go and how to get there, you know, and he used to tease me when I was in college, you know, and, and yes. And so if he had a book and, and he was thinking, yeah, I, I know how to do this thing. I know how to do this dating thing, you know? And, and that book got popular and a lot of people, he was in a circle of people in the church, of white people in the church who took that and ran with it, right? But, and helped him catapult to where he was. But there were a whole lot of people who knew what married sex was, who knew, who had a whole lot of power, who knew that what he wrote was bullshit who knew it, who knew that dating actually helped you learn about who you were, who this other person was, and who knew that you had a lot of things to figure out and that once you got married, you needed to figure out, you know, you had to figure out things. That it wasn't going to be all of a sudden you got married and you were going to have a great sex life. They already knew all that stuff. And they still let him hang himself with that book. Mm. And many of those people, the Dobsons of the world, the um, Jerry Falwells of the world, those people are still out there letting Josh take the heat for the purity movement. And those white men need to be the ones standing up, taking the heat, not Josh alone. And yet Josh has really taken a lot of it on, bless his heart. And he, de he needed to take on a, a fair share of it, but certainly not all of it. Many, many more of those men who were already married, already out there, you know, pushing all this baloney, they needed to be the ones, you know, to do a lot of this, but, but aside from those power brokers up at the very top, right? Who were, if you wanna read a really, really good book about what was happening here in the United States that was merging church and state, Frank Schaefer wrote a book called Sex, Mom and God. And he was in the middle of it with his father, Francis Schaefer. And he was behind the scenes with the religious right and the moral majority inside the meetings with the Koch brothers, which were the power brokers with Reagan and all of them. And that's the book you wanna to read to know how the purity movement got all put together. But hmm. aside from that, the messages of how we protect our children by buying into this idea that it not just don't have sex before marriage, but, but don't sell your heart. 
Don't emotionally connect to someone. Don't desire someone. Don't masturbate. Don't do all these, all of that stuff. And the, and all these ideas, these things that they did in their youth groups, like, you know, passing around pieces of foil and saying, you know, don't clump it up, you know, clump it up while they're talking. And then they unroll it and say, you're going to be like this, you know, piece of foil and all, all those terrible things they did. Parents did that thinking they were being protective. Mm -hmm. Youth group leaders did those things thinking they were being protective. Okay. Mm -hmm. That there was not malice in those people. They actually thought they were doing because when they looked back on their adolescence and they had had sex and, or they had done whatever, and they didn't live, they weren't living a perfect marriage because actually nobody is living a perfect marriage, right? Because again, we have never done a really good job in the United States. They blamed themselves for the shame that they felt as opposed to, it wasn't you, sweetheart. We just never gave you the tools you needed to do intimacy well. We haven't done it in 2000 years. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't because you were bad. It was because we failed you. But they never got that message. The parents, the grandparents, the great grandparents, they never got that message. And instead, mm -hmm. what they did with their shame is they, you know, they, they um, push down further, mm -hmm. right? And so the theology is, it's, it's an old theology that got set up incorrectly in the fourth century with Constantine that was part of the mind-body split. It's, it's never been a Christian sexual ethic and it's always been a problem. You're describing the fact that people, this is kind of been something that's been handed down people are trying to be well-meaning they're trying to go okay what is it that we're trying to navigate here around sexuality we do just want to protect a lot of people in that purity movement that were like okay abstinence only we want to protect our children from um maybe some of the dangers with sex and how to we it's an un it's a murky area that isn't spoken about and hasn't been spoken about very clearly we're trying to do the best we can and therefore as a result of trying to protect, we, we ended up causing more harm than we than was intended by most by most people. Um, and you mentioned there like that that mind body split. I suppose when you're talking about sexuality and why we can't talk about it and why we've never really been able to talk about it, are we on this journey? as a, I suppose, a, a culture or a society, are we on this journey towards going, well, if we think about grandparents, they never spoke about it. You know, it's, it's this thing, it just happens. We don't kind of talk about it. And then it kind of goes to like the next, are we on this journey to try and work out what is the best way to talk about sexuality from not talking about it at all to hiding from it and actively oppressing it to now where we're coming to going, actually, we need to start talking about it. Is that the trajectory you see us on? I wish I could say that the trajectory we're on is like this, <laughs> <is> like this. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, I don't, it, things were, we were doing better in the 60s and 70s uh -huh. than we've done since 1980 backwards. in the United States. Um, so 
And I come, my, my people are from Sweden and they've been, Holland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland has been doing great since the 40s. Mm-hmm. So um, I think in the United States, it's been, you know, it's been terrible. Uh-huh. It depends on what, country, what state you're in. Um, what I can tell you is we have the research to know that if you do 100 one minute conversations, Mm-hmm. or a thousand one minute conversations across a child's life kids kids unfold their sexual and sensual curiosities the same way they always have across mm-hmm. time across culture because they're curious about their world and they're curious about their bodies in the same way all the time so mm-hmm. one year old children start realizing this hand belongs to them and right after that, they find their genitals when they're getting their diaper changed or they're in the bathtub and they are excited about that. Mm-hmm. And we need a parent or a caregiver there who says, yeah, that's your penis or that's your vulva. It's a great part of your body. Now let's move your hand and finish diapering you, right? And when they get potty trained and they can get at that penis or vulva all the time, Then that person says, yep, one of the reasons that feels so good is because you've got lots of nerve endings there. Now we're going to keep our underwear on. And when they hit four, they're old enough to be like, that's a private part of your body. And when you want to touch it, you're going to go in your bedroom or your bathroom because that's where mommy and daddy go or mommy and mommy and daddy and daddy go when they want to touch their private parts because we do it in private in our culture, Mm. you know? And you mm-hmm. say that a hundred times because they're still going to mm-hmm. do it at the dinner table because mm-hmm. they are and they're going to want to tell you about it because that's what they do. And mm-hmm. every kid from around the world does this, right? Mm-hmm. There are things they do at every age and they will give you a million opportunities to teach them about this. But you're the one that has to be prepared. And the way that you get prepared is you deal with your shame, about this because actually you were shamed usually Mm -hmm. at every single one of these steps. Mm -hmm. If you grew up in the United States or at some other culture where you haven't done comprehensive sex education, Mm -hmm. it's not in you because nobody did it for you. So Mm -hmm. that's why I wrote this next book, the book that's just coming out because I made it zero birth to two, two to four, four to six, six to eight. And in Mm -hmm. every single section I say, Here's the behavioral tasks of this age. Here's the emotional tasks of this age. Here's the sexual curiosities of this age. Mm -hmm. Here's the shame triggers you're likely to feel as a person if your parents didn't do this well for you. Here's how you calm and heal your shame triggers Mm -hmm. if you feel them. And then here's the best resources, the best books, the best um, websites for you and for your kids that you want to get for this age Mm -hmm. and so that you're prepared and so that you can practice feeling and then you're ready and then Mm -hmm. you go to the next stage and then the next stage and the next stage and it literally holds your hand all the way up from birth to 18 so you can actually not you know freeze not fight flight or freeze which is Mm -hmm. what parents do you know they're like ah you know, because is my kid masturbating too much, you know, because they've got their hands on their pants all the time or because whatever, 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 whatever. I mean, I get calls all the time 
you know, and in the United States, our professionals, our therapists, our teachers, our doctors, um, our clergy, none of them get sex classes, sex ed classes. They make it one. That's it. Mm -hmm. And so the people, the public go to pastors, go to doctors, go to therapists when they have problems. Mm-hmm. sexual problems like 40 percent of people have sexual health problems and that's who they go to and those people also grew up in silent and silent and shaming homes mm-hmm. and also didn't get education as i hear you talk i hear you speaking almost more about a cultural setting almost more than a biblical setting or a religious setting as if the cultural setting dictated how the Bible was used. And then we, you know, proponents of a purity culture or a conservative Christian sexual ethic might look at that and go, oh, but the Bible says this about same-sex marriage. The Bible says this about sex before marriage. The Bible says it's between a man and a woman. Um, But you seem to be going, it happens, the shame came about because even if you're in a Christian church that didn't talk about sex much, much, the shame came through the culture of implicit, don't touch that, keep that hand away from there. We don't do that here and we don't talk about this. And so that's the culture that inbuilds this shame. But then you're saying, if we are to counter that, it's also like those little conversations that seem to be this culture that over a lifetime then gets, then gets absorbed. I suppose how does how do you see God and religion layering onto this? Is 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 are you is it truly more of like the culture that you're really critiquing rather than the religion? It's really hard for me to separate them because I actually don't know that we've ever um, we've ever truly united them. So. Uh, I think the church has always made sex about men. It's been patriarchal. It's been a patriarchal system. They've always made it about intercourse. They've always made that. That's the thing you don't do until marriage. It's been about what a man wants and on his terms and, and it was supposed to be private. So you didn't talk about it. Mm. Right. And, uh, and it was a way that you controlled people. Um, and you controlled women. Uh, and it's not until you get into the Jewish writing that you see that actually there are all these stories where there is an integration of God and holiness, and love, and belovedness, that is so different than this Christian stuff. For example, um, I found a story that was about the cherub, the cherubim in the Holy of Holy of Holies of the inner uh, temple, right? I always thought they were always the same, that the wings were out over the Ark of the Covenant to show God's protection over the people, but that's not true. In every single rebuilding of the temple, the cherubim were in a different depiction showing a different aspect of God's character. 
The very last temple that was destroyed in 72 AD, the cherubim were in seated sexual embrace. And there was a first century rabbi that every year would pull the paraclete away so that the people could see inside the Holy of Holies. And he would say, this is so you can know that God longs for you and loves you like a lover. Mm. And I remember reading that and thinking to myself, how would we think of God differently if we thought of God like a lover and not just a father? And how would we think of ourselves and our sexuality differently if we thought of God like a lover and not just a father? Mm. I found another verse that's talked about the Song of Songs. And it said that the Jewish people believe that the Song of Songs is the most holy book of the entire Torah and that the rest of the Torah is to point you toward the Song of Songs because the Song of Songs tells you how beloved you are of God. And that is an incredibly erotic book. Mm -hmm. So there, there are like eight different stories that I have in my book in the sixth chapter that are about all these Jewish stories that I found that are the integration of sexuality and spirituality that all of them point you to how relentless of a God we have who gave our sexuality to us so that we might know in human form how loved we are. Mm. It's completely different than this punitive way in which we have been told about our sexuality from a Christian theological perspective. I hear you re-look at the, uh, I guess, the Jewish tradition and then going, okay, this is where what kind of Christianity was birthed out of. What what did we miss here? And as you're going through the religious side of it going, okay, does Christianity truly have like this aversion to sexuality is sexuality really dirty is the is the flesh truly sinful and therefore sexuality sinful i hear you coming to this idea and saying well actually if jesus came and was fully in flesh that means he had a penis that means he was a man means he was likely to be a sexual being and even the in the torah they're talking about they didn't seem to shy away from the divine or God being in sex, which kind of brings us to that clickbait, like God sanctioned divine sex as you're, as you're talking about it. And some people listening often go, I mean, why bother with Christianity? What's the point of being a Christian? It leads to this purity culture. I'm just going to ditch it and find freedom. And, and that's great. And so the question they would ask you and, and be curious about is like, why are you bothering to look at these scriptures and then go, no, no, God actually cares about this. God actually perhaps is present in the sexual and the sexual can be divine and all of those aspects of it. What has been your journey within Christianity to come to this point where you're going, I think it's valuable to to redefine scripture and go back to history and say, no, I think in fact, God is actually more like this. What is what has been your journey to this idea now? Like you, as you're saying, you're speaking in the book. You actively don't shy away from the language of God and the Bible and the Torah and going into that tradition. What's been your journey with bothering to stick with that tradition 
in line with your work? Because I can assume my assumption would be many academics would be like, ah, religion, Christianity, we don't really need it. Let's look at the data. Let's look at the science and leave it there. Yeah. Well, this isn't just been for me. You know, in fact, I didn't write the book for me. It's not what prompted it. It came out of walking alongside people whose lives had been devastated, right? And many of those people didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, gay and queer and trans. They didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so I asked the question, you know, had Christianity always been sex naked or had it ever been sex positive? And the answer was no. You know, it, it came up with its sexual ethic in the fourth century with Constantine. Well, then had it ever been sex positive anywhere? And I followed the Abrahamic line down because I knew Christians who could not move to the Eastern stuff, to Tantra and other forms that just didn't resonate with them. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go on an exploration and see if I see anything on the Abrahamic line. Jesus was a Jew, right? So I'm just going to see if I can find anything there because maybe that would be of interest to people where that's true for them. And I found incredible things that were, you know, that will make you cry. I mean, just or amazing. And I thought, okay, if this can be of use to people, I want to bring it forward to them, right? The other thing that I found, and so I run an institute that trains physicians and clergy and teachers and psychotherapists in sexual health, postgraduate sexual health, so that they can have that because there's only about five or six places in the United States that do that kind of training. But the other thing we do is we run intimacy retreats for straight couples because they're the ones having the worst sex by far, hands down, right? Because it's it's what they've learned for 2000 years and it's, you know, penis and vagina sex and it's what he wants and it's terrible, it's boring, it's, it's terrible. So, so we run these great retreats. What I have learned from the retreats, I've learned so many things, but one of the things that I have learned is that bad sex can really hurt you. And really, really loving, present, intentional, open-hearted, vulnerable, sexual touch can heal better than almost anything. And I have seen it heal attachment wounds faster than any form of therapy I know. I've watched couples that hadn't touched in 10 years and were colder than ice on a Thursday night, like this, 36 hours later. And, you know, there were a lot of things that we talked about and taught about, but it was these things that we call passion practices and it was not intercourse. We take intercourse off the table. We teach them how to show up to each other with intention, attention, eyes, love, breath, open heart. It's scarier than shit. So scary, but they came, they were willing to do it and they end up healing things that 
they thought could never be healed. And there's something about you bring the whole of you to a partner that you love, but that you're scared will reject you, but that you really want the relationship to work with. And it's amazing what, what I call sacred sexual touch can do. Mm. And that's what I've learned. It's an incredible healer. And I believe, even though it's mysterious to me and I don't fully understand it, I believe that there's something holy in it. Mm. So while it can be a powerful thing that will hurt people and it and when it does hurt people it hurts them in their soul it also can be a powerful healer because i suppose that sounds like is when you're you even use that word i was going to bring up sacred there's this you're talking about sex and sexuality in a in a way that could be people could use words like divine. They could be like, they could be saying that um, the sexuality is used to heal. And then, you know, people might draw those parallels to, well, Jesus healed this God or divine is about healing. And you're, you're going, well, if I've seen people be healed through sexual intimacy and touch in this way, then this seems to be sacred as well as everything else. And I can see your, your work kind of integrating something back into the religious tradition or, or, the, or the Christian tradition. But then I also hear you say, this is something that's, I suppose, you, I think you said dangerous or um, can be very harmful. So I guess it's this fear around sex. So could you talk to me about what are the dangers of sex? What are what are the the things that probably purity culture looked at and went, oh, that's scary and to be very avoided. Let's do this because of fear of this. What is, I guess, I suppose, what is the legitimate fear that religion might have around sex? Well, so the first thing I think about isn't legitimate, but I'm going to say it anyway. Yeah. Okay. Because I think it, I think it needs to be said. Mm-hmm. I think forever, 2,500 years or so, whatever. I think Christianity has been afraid of sexual desire that it has gone. This is a big feeling. It scares the shit out of us. And, and what it did with that is it said big feeling men can handle it. It's her fault. And they did that really early on. They did that with Augustine. They did that with all of the early bishops and they pointed their finger at her. And that is the beginning of where it went wrong. One of the places, one of the major places it went wrong. In Jewish thought, the story goes, and this is from 500 BC, the story goes The rabbis of the village were all concerned because there was way too much sexual energy going on and people were way out of control and they didn't know what to do about it. So they went into the temple and they begged God to take it away. And they begged God and begged God and God said, no. And they begged God and begged God and God said, no. They begged God and begged God some more. And God finally said, fine, fine. 
And out of the Holy of Holies jumped a big lion of fire that went, the spirit went across the entire village. And the next day, the hens stopped laying eggs, the artists stopped creating, the businesses all stopped, all stopped. Everything in the village just faltered. It was if a depression rusted on the entire village. And the rabbis went back into the Holy of Holies and they said to God, we get it. We get that at the heart of sexual desire is the core of all creative invention, all innovation. Mm. Can you give us one without the other? And God said, no. With all great gifts that I give you, I give you the responsibility to manage it. And so then the rabbi said, then fine, can you give it back to us just not so strong? And God said, I will. That's the Jewish story. The Jew inside Jewish culture is the understanding that sexual desire is a strong feeling, but that every person has the responsibility to manage it, men and women. Mm. Now, when we are raising our children, we expect our boys and our girls to have self-discipline in every other area of their life, mm. except sexuality. What in the world is that about? Mm. What is that about? That has caused nothing but problems in heterosexual relationships. So women learn to shut their sexual sexuality down and men learn to not be responsible for it. We have consent violations right and left. We have heterosexual relationships where women don't know what they want, where they have a low desire and he's the high desire partner. Terrible sexual relationships going on, right? It's transactional. Who wants a transactional sex life? I don't, do you, right? Terrible stuff. This has been going on forever and ever. That is a desire problem. Right. So I think this needs to be said because people think desire is something that's dangerous. Desire is not dangerous. It's maybe dangerous in your head. Desire isn't dangerous. You can manage desire. Every person on this planet can manage desire. Learn it. You know, I raised my kids, my boys and my girls. You can manage everything you say and everything you do. And if you don't, that's your fault not someone else's. It's yours, right? So I think this is something that is a problem for us because we don't hold accountability there. So what is dangerous about sexuality? I think, I think we have to know where exploitation happens. I think we have to, for example, parents need to be mindful about what kinds of things are beyond what their kids can manage and then intervene at those places. So you don't put um, an iPhone or a laptop or an iPad without any blockers on it in the hands of a six-year-old. 
because they're not going to be able to manage what they see if you're not going to be running interference, if you're not going to be running supervision, right? So you've got to know what's happening out there in the world and you've got to intervene at the developmental stage of your child so that they are only hitting what they have the capacity to deal with and you're preemptively preparing them for what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And you're their first resource for the next thing that's coming Mm -hmm. because a lot is coming at them fast. But Mm -hmm. ideally you wanna be the first one to tell them, here's what's coming next. And here's what's real about it. And here's what's fantasy about it. And here's what I want you to do. If something comes that's confusing to you, we need to talk about it, you know, because I don't want you to be scared by it or whatever, because things are goofy out there, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'd say mm-hmm. there's a little bit of what I think. Do, do you think that the, the conservative Christian ethic or purity culture, do you think that that essentially treats everybody at the one level of saying you can't handle it. This is too dangerous. No one can handle it. And therefore it's like, as if everyone's at this developmental stage of like 12 or 13. And then that's the one thing for everybody beyond that. And then what it says to uh, men is saying like, Oh, you can't control this desire. And then what it says to women is, and if they can't, it's your fault. So hide your body, hide your, your, is that kind of what it is? It's this, I'm hearing there's, there's these two alternatives. Um, you're actually in, in a non-controversial way. It may be conservative friends of the show listening might, might hear what you're saying is if I stereotype the political into just left and right, the conservatives would, they're all about this individual responsibility and as much freedom as possible. And I've really heard you articulate that idea saying, we all have individual responsibility and we all have to be held responsible. So in that sense, it's, it's not controversial for, for, for those listeners because you're kind of saying we, we can learn to manage and cope and deal with our behavior. Um, but I, I hear you draw a distinct line that says desire because I guess that's where it gets murky because you have that verse in the Bible that says um, – if you lust in your heart and you've committed adultery and then that kind of goes into this desire thing being like, Oh no, all desire is bad. And then the endless battle of trying to not be attracted to somebody, trying not to be drawn to somebody, it kind of begins this difficult, this difficult battle. You know, I, I'm not sure that we completely understand that verse and, and I am not a big one for cherry picking verses anyway. Um, but Anytime we say, don't think, don't think, don't think, we think, <laughs> you know? So I think asking yourself, are, you, are your thoughts not being helpful to you? And if your own answer is, yeah, those thoughts aren't being very helpful, well, what else do you want to be focusing on? You know, like, you know, um, again, Shame wants to tell you that you're unworthy, like you shouldn't be doing that. It, um, I don't know. I just, I feel like you're, it's okay for you to say, oh, that person is beautiful or, oh, that, th-, you know, whatever. But um, 
you know, don't exploit somebody. Don't go out and hurt somebody, you know? Um, understand that all people walking this planet are beloved of God. Treat them that way in your thoughts. Treat them that way in your heart, you know? I think that one, one of the things we know is that in those places where we are most conservative, where we say don't the most, where we have the least amount of education, where we are the most authoritative, are the places where we have the highest porn use, where we have the highest pregnancy rates, where we have the highest STI rates, we have the highest rape rates. It just does us no good to say no and to not have open discussion about what's going on in people's lives and mm -hmm. how can we help you? How can we serve you? Talk, say what's going on for you. You're not a bad person if you're thinking and feeling, you know, how do we help you? So practically then, as you, as we work through what a new Christian sexual ethic might look like and in, in the, in your book, uh, a, about raising children, I suppose these are, these are the hard questions that people might throw at you now and go, okay, well, if you're taking this clean line off the table, Tina, you, you've said, okay, I hear you calling into question sex before marriage. I hear you saying, well, masturbation might be okay. What am I supposed to do? And so let me hit you with some of like the hot topic issues that seem to be cleanly addressed under a conservative sexual ethic. And if we're, we're redefining it, what... When I'm raising my kids, people might ask, okay, so what is the deal? Do we, do we ditch sex before marriage? We go, it doesn't matter anymore. What's your, as you navigate this, what's the sexual ethic now? Well, see, this is it. At first, I just want to hug people and say, please take a deep breath. Just okay. take a deep breath. And then let me say to you that your parents didn't get to know what decisions you were making either. Hmm. You made your decisions and your children are going to make their decisions too. So here's what I want for you. I want you to have a relationship with your children such that they actually want to keep talking to you mm -hmm. all the way through being 20, all the way through college. Are you talking about giving I'm hearing you give a sense of autonomy, saying a, a, sense, a bit of distance between you and your, I guess, later teenager going, you're going to make your own decisions. I'm not here to control you, you know, but I'm always here. And then maybe from that element of trust, is that what you're saying? You need to build this. Saying this, this... whether you want it or not, they're going <laughs> to do it. I'm not saying giving it to them. You can take try to take it away from them, but every time they walk out that door, they will be making their own decisions. Every person who grew up in an authoritative home, if they had half of their own chutzpah, they made their decisions underground and their parents didn't know, right? Right. And so if you want your child to be the kind of child that actually still talks to you and doesn't go underground, then you want to follow what I lay out. Mm -hmm. That is how you protect your child's best mm -hmm. is a child that still wants to talk to you where you are seen as a resource, an ally to them where they don't go to their friends as first resort. They go to you as first resort. Mm -hmm. 
because you will always be their best resource if you're resourced. As a resource, as if they come to you and then say, uh, should, should I should I have sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend? What what do you think? What what do you, I'm I'm your I'm your son now. You can you can imagine you can imagine that. And then it's like tell tell me why you think you're ready. Okay. This is this is your you're writing you're writing your sexual narrative. I already wrote mine. Mm-hmm. Listen, all my all my friends are doing it. I feel a bit left out. She's pretty cool. I think it would be fun. And is this the narrative you want to? tell your future partner and you tell your children that you did it just because all your friends were. Is that the narrative you want to have? Because it can be, it can be your narrative. Is this the one you want? Hmm. I'll have to think about that. You flipped it. I want a clean rule, Tina. Just tell me what to do. Yeah. And, and, and let me tell you, and this may not matter to you at all. And that's fine because you will make the decision you make. Like I said, I already made mine. But let me tell you that research says that your first time does matter. It doesn't mean that if it's bad, it's going to be bad forever. And it doesn't mean that if it's delightful, it's going to be delightful forever. But research does suggest that your first time does matter. And I just want you to know that. So I do want you to think about how you want to write your sexual narrative. Hmm. and when you think you're going to be ready and what readiness looks like for you. It sounds like in the conversation, it sounds like you're lo- it, lowering the stakes from what they are under a morality-driven sexual ethic. So it, in, a, in a morality-driven one, it's like if you have sex before marriage, that's a sin. That's um, a moral failing. Uh, you will be impure, you know, it, you know, it, it's ramifications, but it sounds like you've lowered the stakes and gone, it's a possibility. And if you did, you'd probably be okay. And you know, that's okay. And nothing major. However, here's something to consider. I do a lot of research. Here's some of the research there. And now, now you will make your decision. And if, you know, whatever happens, happens, that's also still Okay. If that's what I'm hearing in, in that level. It's like the stakes are lowered. Right. And I want them to embrace their own story. I want them to own it. I want them to own their life. Mm-hmm. So porn. Yeah. What's the conversation around porn? So the conversation around porn is one is about how it's made and the different ways it's made. And two, what it is and what it isn't. So so if I have a child that's straight, then I'm talking about free porn versus ethical porn. And I'm talking about the male gaze versus the female gaze. Okay. And those are important things. You know, free porn, women are very exploited Mm -hmm. and there's a, more violence in that porn and the, the women aren't a poor part of designing the scenes and they're not paid well and blah 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 um and it's all around the male fantasy gaze it's the female female pleasures not much a part of it and that is not going to bode well for your education on how to make love to a woman mm-hmm. and so so i talk about you know fantasy, you know, like we might like to watch high action movies, 
but that's not usually the way we live our life. And if we lived our life that way, we want to be dead really quickly, mm-hmm. you know? So, so we have lots of conversations about that and, and, you know, um, and, and, and I also want to talk about sex work as being a legitimate form of work, you know, and that there are many women that I know that choose sex work as a legitimate form of work. And that there are some people that get into sex work and it's an exploited kind of work and they are exploited in it. Um, so we have that kind of, if they are trans or gay, then I talk about that. This is sometimes a place where people also learn about what that kind of sex might look like. And it may have fantasy elements involved. It also often doesn't have the kind of exploitation and humiliation elements in it that straight porn does. Hmm. So, but you see the variety of how sex is done. And sometimes that's hard to come by. Uh, I can imagine some friends of the show listening, maybe being, you know, disappointed or, or looking for something. Because what I'm not hearing is like, hard and fast rules. Religion really gave us some fast rules. Like if I could just be, you know, porn, no, bad, don't look at it. Uh, masturbation, no, bad, don't do it. Oh no, um, do, do it. <laughs> well, okay, there you go. We've got, we've got one, masturbate. <laughs> the, what, what does the research say about masturbation then? Well, 99% of men and 85% of women do. And so one, if you say don't, you're going to really confuse your kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, it's actually very healthy and helpful mm-hmm. to your body. It's a natural painkiller for women when they're on their periods and they're having cramps. Um, we have different standards for women and men. Um, so I think you need to talk about it. You need to talk about somewhere between the ages of 13 and 15. Boys have 20 times the amount of testosterone dumped in their bodies. So they go from a bicycle. That explains it. Do you remember that? You go from a bicycle to a rocket ship. Oh. Okay. You know, it's like, wow. <laughs> you know, and boys need to be told that. Uh-huh. You know, and so yes, yeah, before school, after school. You know, it's like, okay, dude, you're okay. And 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 research also says that boys so often are like they stop being hugged like around six years old. And so the next time they actually experience Mm -hmm. intimacy is through sex. Well, I'm sorry, boys and girls need intimacy. They need being held. We neurobiologically need touch. And so often men actually confuse their drive to move through their arousal cycle with their need for touch. And so sometimes when they're bugging their partner for like sex, like the move through the arousal cycle part of sex, what they're Mm. actually really also, they're super lonely. They super Mm. need her heart or his heart. They need connection and pleasure. They don't necessarily need to move through their arousal cycle. They have these for that. They need connection desperately. And if they're heterosexual, (laughs) if they're heterosexual, they, that, the woman is often getting intimacy in many other places, children, friends, girlfriends, mm. whatever, but he's not. And he is desperately lonely. Yeah. And he doesn't know how to say it any other way. And mm. women don't get that. Women think if I could just take my vagina off mm. my body and hand <laughs> it to him, he would be fine. <clears throat> and that is not the case. He misses oh. her. He misses her. 
I'm not hearing a biblically, like a Bible being used to define a sexual ethic. I'm hearing you say, all right, well, let's look at the data. This many people do this. This leads to these outcomes. I'm going to look at that data with outcomes saying what leads people with to have less shame? What leads people to more sexually fulfilling relationships? What leads people? And it sounds like obviously from the area you come from, you're very well versed in the data. And that seems to be driving then any advice. If I was to say, hey, Dr. Tina, what should I what should I be doing masturbation wise or this wise? How much porn should I be consuming? That It seems to be the answer never goes to, well, in Leviticus, it talks about, you know, this and that's why. It seems like you're using a lot of data. But then what's fascinating is that the Bible and sacred text, I suppose, is still being used to add an element to it. Because in your book, you've got whole chapters with these with these stories um, that kind of add a layer. So there's this research layer, but I'm also hearing a layer that says, but sex is also, you use the word sacred and, and it didn't, and you, I think you said, you're still unsure exactly as to how or why that kind of is, but it's this it is something, it has this healing quality, it has this healing power, and that's where God seems to fit in. How does that kind of sound about? What yeah, no, about? you got it. And and this is what I think is, it's the mystery. And in Christianity, what we've done is we've tried to, and this is patriarchy, this is not, this is not the core of what I believe that Jesus wanted Christianity to become. I think he wanted it to remain mystical, but in the patriarchal side of the empire religion that became Christianity, we tried to draw lines. We tried to create boxes. We tried to make it about power and control. And, but, but I don't think sexuality ever was to be inside of that. And, and one of the stories that I came across talked about that when the, the temple was destroyed that that the holy of holies became the bedroom of the couple and you met the shekinah you met god in lovemaking hmm. that's where you met god Mm-hmm. And I talked to so many Jewish people who said, oh, yeah, yeah, because it was a double blessing when you made love on the Sabbath. And I remember my parents being in their bedroom on the Sabbath because it was a double blessing when you made love on the Sabbath. So many Jewish people grew up with a much different experience of sex in their family. It was open. It was loving. They remember their families, their their parents hugging and kissing and flirting and all of that. It was just Mm. different in the Jewish home than in the quote unquote Christian empire religion home. And when I talk about Jesus ministry, I often will talk about, you you remember the story of um, the, the dinner party, right? And they're having a dinner party and in walks this woman, right? And I love to think about like a really fancy dinner party and in, in walking a woman. <clears throat> and she drops down to the ground and lets her hair down and breaks open an expensive bottle of perfume over Jesus' lower legs and her feet and begins to weep and washes his feet with her hair. And in essence, she makes love to his feet with her body, like with her whole being, she is completely immersed 
in loving him with her entire being. It's as if no one else is there. And what does he do? He completely receives her. And when everybody starts to freak out about it, like, why is he doing this? He turns and he said, what did you do for me? What did you do? I tell you what she is doing right now will never be forgotten, will always be spoken about. Mm -hmm. Jesus had no problem with the body. He had no problems with that type of expression of pure love. No problem whatsoever. So I don't believe for one minute that, that Jesus had a problem with love, love making bodies, love, anything sacred like that. And we never developed a sexual ethic out of the values that Jesus demonstrated mm-hmm. about the value of people, the value of women, men, marginalized people, the people that had were um, uh, able-bodied, uh, disabled, etc. We never did it, but everything was right there in front of us, right there in front of us. So yes, it's not what we developed out of the empire church. That has never been it. But I think we see it around us all the time. Because people keep, I suppose the questions that I can hear listeners would be asking like, but is it okay to have sex outside of marriage? Is it okay for gay people to get married? Is it okay? And it sounds like when I speak to you, that's only the beginning of a long nuanced conversation where more questions are asked, where we go, that's not the beginning and the answer doesn't stop there. If you're asking me this question, tell me about you. Where are you coming from? Tell me like, and, and it's like, you need to engage in relationship in order to have to find answers to these questions. And these answers, it sounds like are going to be different depending on whether you're gay, straight, married, single, uh, different cultures, different backgrounds. It sounds like you're saying this conversation, it has to always be a conversation and, and not necessarily a set of rules. As, as I wrap up a few questions, I like to ask, I've, I've modified them here a little bit. Um, so two questions, but two parts to kind of each question. What is, from where you sit, what is purity culture at its best and at its worst? So at its best, purity culture is what? Is there anything redeemable about purity culture? Maybe, maybe there was a hope to be protective, um, but it was a, it was a, unfortunately a very misguided hope, and um, and it was a manipulated a, a manipulated hope that people were manipulated in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, it makes me still profoundly sad. And I think th- through our conversation, we have kind of looked at what purity culture at its worst. So to, th- to the next one, what is like a, 
you know, we had friend of the show, Nicole, and friend of the show, Kevin, uh, both OnlyFans models making their own porn. Um, they might, you know, fit under like a very loose term of a secular sexual ethic where it's like, listen, you know, it's okay. What's the difference kind of between me making money, showing my D on camera? What's, you know, what's the difference between you using your body as a laborer? What is, I guess, the best of that sexual ethic? They are adults. They are, they feel empowered to make those choices. They, um, are they feel good about the choices that they're making um yeah i mean i think that people have the right to be sex workers if that's Mm -hmm. what their choices are and they feel okay about how they're being paid and who they're working with Mm -hmm. scenes that they're involved in and etc etc they don't they don't feel like they're exploiting anybody and they don't they're not being exploited Mm yes i think sex work is a legitimate form of work and at its worst? At its worst is when 18 year olds answer ads thinking they're gonna become models and they get taken to Florida where they don't have to use prophylactics and they are exploited and hurt and horrible things happen to them. And three months Mm -hmm. later, they're attempting to escape. Thanks so much for taking so much time. There's so many different avenues we could have gone into. If you have any questions, shoot them through on the DM. Definitely missed a lot of stuff. Could have gone for another hour at least. Um, if Is there anything you want to add to kind of wrap up with the, this conversation that you might have missed? <sighs> um, yeah, it was fun. And yes, we could have gone down many different avenues. and It was great. Um, I guess I would just say that the parenting book we will be also doing on my website which is tinashermersellers.com which you can find me on instagram at at um dr tina shameless so you'll be able to find other things there but we will be doing a parenting community there for parents where um we'll keep putting stuff for the different ages we'll keep writing we'll be putting content i'll be doing a monthly Q&A and we just want to keep holding the hands of parents and really try to support parents along the way because we just know there just hasn't been this combination of um, helping parents know what's coming, helping them deal with their shame um, and giving them resources. There hasn't been that combination yet and, and for professionals. So we're really wanting to try to provide that because we're wanting to try to make a difference for parents and for parents to have more fun with their kids instead of feel so freaked out by all this stuff. So, well, thank you so much. That's yes. If you want to learn more about Tina's work and what she's up to, you can find her on those. I'll have link links to that in, in the show notes. Uh, now, whether you, you get to the end of this episode and if you agree or disagree, it doesn't really matter. Uh, if you, if you have disagreed with the whole thing and, and, and you'd, you'd be intrigued by it, but you're still here, you need to send me a DM being like, listen, I, that triggered me a lot and I listened to the whole thing. I will send you a gold emoji token. You can spend it anywhere where it's accepted and you've earned it. Um, so I, as I said before, send me a question if I, if I missed any questions posted on the, 
on the uh, post that I'll, I'll put through. Uh, thanks to f- listeners and friends of the show who, who actually, as I went, who should I talk to in this sexuality series, put through lots of these names. Dr. Tina was one of them. And so it's been f- fantastic to be able to reach out and, and have her on the show. So thanks so much, Dr. Tina. Thanks so much for uh, everyone listening to the show. And if you made it to the end, moral obligation, rate and review the show. We're trying to gain more clout as a podcast. Clout comes in the form of reviews. Rate and review, moral obligation. Five stars would be nice. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And I'll catch you in the next episode.